This audio is from King's Cross Church in Independence, Missouri. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit kingscrosskc.com. John chapter 12, starting at verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion! Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Will Turner. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Cross, and I'm pretty hype about this text, to be honest. I'm pretty hype. And part of that is because it's a good word. The other part is I like spent the entire weekend with my boys watching the Creed movies. So I'm just like, I'm feeling just a little like, I don't know, I'm feeling really good um, about this text. And it does pack a punch. It, it, it has wrecked me this week. It has left me laid out in the ring where I cannot get up. Um, and my prayer this morning is that it would do the same to you. And, and I think one of the reasons that it's so impactful is we get a picture of the perfect leader in this passage, the perfect leader that we want and desire and actually need. And what's unfortunate is so many times in our lives, we settle for bad leaders. In fact, we settle for leaders that are terrible and they're terrible for two reasons. And we actually like them for these reasons. Reason one, they actually just fold to whatever the crowd wants. So leader one, he's bad because he, he does the, whatever the crowd wants. So the crowd's moving a certain way. They want a certain thing. And the leader's like, yeah, I'm doing that. That's what I'm leading them towards. And he just takes credit for the direction that the crowd is already going like a chameleon, right? So we have that kind of leader. The other kind of leader sees the direction that the crowd's going. And if it's a little bit different than what he wants, he doesn't kindly do anything. He grabs the steering wheel and jerks everybody in the direction that he wants and says, this is the way we're going. You can't say anything about it. Suck it up. Like this is where we're at. So you have like the domineering, jerking the wheel leader, or you have the leader that just kind of molds and is like, yeah, absolutely. That's what I am. I'm this. And then some of the opinion of the crowd changes. Oh yeah, that's what I am too. And so we have these contrasting leaders. And if we're to be honest, you and I love both of them. We do. We love both of them. So many times I would love a leader to just do exactly what I want them to do, or I think they should do. 
If so-and-so would just do this, whether it be just listen to what I want, or man, if this person in charge would just do this, bring justice down. And I think that we even see the disciples acting this way. Like if Jesus would just do this thing, like then, then we would be okay. Grab the steering wheel, jerk in the direction we needed to go. We actually want both of those leaders, but Jesus demonstrates for us a third way this morning. Martin Luther King also demonstrated this. And, and I know like we can, we can talk about perfect leaders and perfect leaders. I know that he was a flawed man and we're not here to talk about his morality, but his, his leadership style embodied this third way. Martin Luther King could have gone the way the crowd wanted him to go. Some of them wanted him to increase the, the violence in which he would protest. And the other side would just would say, just be quiet for a little while. If you just let this go and, and he would not go either of those ways, he would not fold into either of those desires. And he didn't get what he wanted by jerking the crowd around in the direction that was domineering or forceful or hateful. He chose a third way, a way of peace, a way of humility, and in the quietness was strength. And ironically, he was killed for it. And we look at the passage this week, and we see Jesus leading in the third way. <laughs> humility, peace, quiet strength, and at the end of this week, he would die for it. He would die for it. This is Palm Sunday. This is the triumphant entry. And if you're like, man, this is what, uh, Orion really threaded this needle when he put this series together, right? Like we didn't have to like rearrange anything. Like this Sunday fell on Palm Sunday. That's where we are in the text as we've been preaching through the book of John. And it is, it is Palm Sunday in the text. It is Palm Sunday here. Let's examine together the third way in which Jesus led and be transformed by it. So let's pray and jump in. Father, show us yourself. Show us yourself. God, we need you this morning. I need you this morning. Lord, I, I feel weak, and so I need your strength. Lord, help us as we enter into this text, manage our expectations of you. And let our expectations of you be based on what this book teaches, what your word teaches, and not on some agenda or not on some backstory or bias that we have coming in. Like you are God and God alone, and, and your word says who you are. Let our expectations of you be based on that this morning. And as we read how you lead these people, let it shape us. Let it transform our hearts. Let us forever be changed. So be with us in this moment, Lord, in your name. Amen. All right. John 12, we start in verse 9. There's, there, there is a lot of work to do here. Uh, this is a transitional moment in the book of John and in Jesus's ministry. So far, what we've seen is, is Jesus uh, performing miracles, doing ministry specifically to the Jewish people. And this moment marks a transition point where his ministry is no longer a ministry of, of works and miracles, but it moves into a ministry that's outside of the Jewish framework and in, embodies the entire world, and it's moving towards glory. So it's a transition in the passage, and he does this little sabbatical before Passover week in Bethany. Orion was talking about this last week. This is his base, right? This is where he hangs out. He's got his friends. He's resting. 
And everything that he has done up to this point that John writes in this way is to show us that Jesus is the light of the world. He is the resurrection life. Everything that you're going to see in this passage from John 1 till now is pointing to those things. And Jesus has been demonstrating that by preaching a really great sermon and then backing it up by doing a miracle. And so there's stuff that we don't even know that Jesus did. John says that. And there's miracles that he performed and sermons he probably preached that we don't get to hear. The reason John wrote down what he wrote down and and God ordained and sovereignly put in this book is that he would like to show us that Jesus backs up, he says, to an escalating moment when all things are made new at the end of time. So at the very beginning of John, we see Jesus walking around saying things like, I'm the bread of life. What does he do? He feeds 5,000 people. He backs it up. The next, the next miracle we see coming along, uh, he says, I'm the light of the world, right? I'm the light of the world. And he takes a blind man who's only known darkness and he lets him see for the first time. And then it goes a little bit further and he's preaching the sermon. He says, I'm the resurrection life. And they're like, what does that mean? And he's like, well, let me show you. Here's a guy who's been dead for three days and he's stinky in the grave. And I'm going to say, get up out of that grave. And he walks out as an alive man. I'm the resurrection life. Here's an alive person who should not be alive. He's been preaching sermons. He's been backing it up. And we know, and this is where it gets a little different. It's one thing to, to call a man back to life. It's another thing to bring himself back to life. And so the miracles have escalated up to this point. He's entering into Passion Week. And because of all that he's done, he has a massive following. Orion said this last week. He said that if you were around this area at the time, everyone would have been talking about Jesus. It would have been on everyone's mind. You'd have said the name Jesus. And I was like, oh, that's the guy that, oh, he made that wedding like way better when they ran out of wine. And like, and then it's like, oh yeah, but then remember that guy that couldn't walk? And then he told him to get up and he started doing that. Everyone is talking about uh, Jesus at this time. And, and most recently because of Lazarus, right? Lazarus is back from the dead. And so that's where we are in our story is he's hanging out at Bethany with Lazarus, with Mary and Martha. Uh, we got to see this beautiful picture of Mary worshiping Jesus this week. And ironically, this week, we get to see a contrasting view of a different kind of worship in the passage. Um, and so we're going to jump in right there in verse nine, when he's out in Bethany with his, his crew. When a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So this is that paparazzi crowd coming to see Jesus. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So a little bit of backstory here. They're hanging out. They're, they're in Bethany, the paparazzi's showing up, and we know that the Pharisees and the religious leaders are slowly beginning to realize this is getting out of our hands. We're, we're not going to be able to control this much longer. So the crowd goes, so our power goes, and we are no longer in control of the crowds. They are, there's a massive amount of people following him. And, and here's why they're nervous. And Orion brought this up last week too. If they're, they're nervous because they know when big crowds of Jews gather together, Rome gets pretty nervous. And they're like, man, if we don't cut out this like thing, they're going to think we're raising some sort of uh, like rebellion war party. It's been, it had been done before in history and it would happen again. Like the Rome is going to squash us. So they're, they're pretty nervous. And they think, man, this guy named Lazarus was brought back to life. So we, we not only need to kill Jesus, which was their plan last week, but now we got to kill this guy named Lazarus too. Because if we can squash these two, we can squash what, like what these guys are doing and the crowds will dissipate. So they start making plans. They see it going out of control. 
And they're just going to start looking for anything to put these guys away. They're going to start looking for anything. And then the, ver- the, the passage transitions to verse 12. And it is in this, in this book, we don't get the full donkey backstory. So we're going to have to like go to other uh, books. So if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's more of an account of the donkey. I'll paraphrase it for you this morning. So the, it's Passover week. They're going to leave Bethany. They've got this paparazzi crowd of Jews following them. They're going to go. And Jesus is like, okay, I see what's happening. I see what the crowd wants of me. I see what the Pharisees thinking of me. I see what Rome's watching me. Like, all this stuff is going on. All these pieces are falling into place. Jesus knows what he's about to walk into. And so he sends his disciples on an errand. He says, I want you to go to this house. And when you get there, there's going to be a, a, a colt, a donkey tied up. And you're going to ask them to do, to give us that donkey. And the Lord sends you and all this stuff. And, I, and you're the disciples like, you're just taking this errand, right? You've just seen Jesus call people out of the grave, come back to life. And it's like, I guess like I get to show up at this house and ask this guy for this donkey and it's going to work out for me because Jesus said so, right? Be, Jesus said so. So they go to the house. They say the things Jesus tells them to. They get this donkey. They bring it back. They saddle up this bad boy and they ride into Jerusalem. And so that's where we jump back into John and verse 12. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on the donkey's colt. So we're going to make some observations as we work through this passage. And at the end, I'm going to make a few exhortations based on those observations. Uh, Some Bible work here. Let's ask some questions. Like this is how sermon prep goes. Why in the world are they waving palm branches? Why did they go get them? We have palm branches everywhere. It's Palm Sunday. We've been doing this for years. Growing up, I remember like the greeters at the door would hand us palm leaves and we would sing Hosanna and wave the palm leaves on Sunday mornings in our churches here in America. And I have no idea why just what they did. So that's what we'll do, right? Like when in Rome, ironically, why are they waving palm branches? I don't know why. Here's why. And it's not the happy, good meaning that we maybe all thought. It's not. For them, waving palm branches was equal to rebellion against the Roman empire. This would be very much the same as if I said, every time I say Jesus this morning, I want you to get out a little American flag and I want you to wave it. I want you to wave your American flag every time I say the name of Jesus. How does that feel? It did something inside of you, didn't it? This wasn't a symbol of worship like we saw Mary where she was washing Jesus's feet with her hair, where she was giving the best part of her to the least part of Jesus last week, this was a different kind of worship. This is worship with an agenda. This is worship with an expectation. This is worship tied to nationalistic pride. This is worship of this, this, the, the palm branches were a symbol of victory. So they, they would bring out the palm branches and three specific historical moments. You can see these as examples. So the palm branches were brought out for the rededication of the temple. They, they waved them then. When they gained political independence uh, in 141 BC, they waved them and they would print palm branches on the denarii, the coin of the time, specifically during times of Roman rebellion, when they, the Jewish people would revolt against Rome, specifically most recently in the Maccabean Wars, where you see your Pharisees becoming the freedom fighters that are rescuing the people. It's a different kind of worship. 
tied in with this worship isn't, we love this Messiah because he's the king who's going to deliver us from sin. This is, this is a freedom fighter that they're worshiping. They have all kinds of political agenda backing up with their waving of these palm branches. And Jesus knows this. And then the second thing, this weird word that we say all the time and don't even know, like, what is that? Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this is a reference. The second piece of this is a reference to Psalm 118, which we read together this morning in our assurance of pardon. The steadfast love of God. This was a psalm that they would read during Passover in remembrance of God bringing victory to them over their enemies. This was a song. So they're singing this victorious battle cry psalm while waving nationalistic pride symbols saying, Hosanna, this is the person who's going to rescue us and deliver us from our enemies. Hosanna, by the way, it has a, it has a base meaning, right? And this time the word had been watered down to basically just mean a cry of jubile and praise, right? It's similar to when we see the chiefs doing good. We say, let's go, right? It's the same thing. Like their, their Hosanna is our let's go. But ironically, it also literally meant save us right now. Save us right now. Save us right now. We need victory over our enemies. We need you to come into to, to this city and fulfill the prophecy where you mount up on your war horse. You come in and you lead the people. We take Rome by storm and we kick them out. We slaughter them. And the, the Jewish nation has pride and we're all our own again and all these things, right? And that's what happened. Nope. And so we have all of this history that shows us that what was forming at this, the gates of Jerusalem wasn't an act of worship. It was a war party. It was a war party. And Jesus was not here to fight Rome. He was not here to fight Rome. Jesus isn't actually even concerned or worried or anxious about the Romans at all. He knew that their kingdom was going to fall. He didn't have to do anything in that moment to make their kingdom fall. Jesus was here for a different war. He was here for a different war, and he knew he was not coming to fight against Rome. He was coming to fight against sin and death, and he was going to bring the full force of heaven to conquer it, which is why he didn't ride a war horse. He rode a donkey. The fulfillment of, his, of, of Zechariah, when it says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. There's more to that prophecy in Zechariah that we should hear this morning. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation. He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Listen to verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This prophecy directly was saying Jesus is coming not to make war against the nationalistic authority in the land. He was making war against sin and death. And the way that he walks into the city is not going to be the way that you want him to walk in the city. The war horse will be cut off. The bow will be broken and he will come as the prince of peace this time. This time. When Jesus entered into the city in all of the jubilation of the moment of the waving of palm branches and the cheering and the hosannas and everything, 
Can you imagine the expectation? Like, can you imagine if during the Chiefs victory parade, Patrick Mahomes like rode a bike down one street and nobody else was involved? We would be disappointed. We wanted our king to wave his victory banner, right? Like to act a fool and do exactly what we wanted him to do. Can you imagine if our disappointment and expectations would have not been met in that moment? We'd have been like, who's this? What's going on here? The first thing Jesus does in Passion Week is disappoint the people who are following him. Disappoint the, pro- the paparazzi crowd because he chose the third way of humility and peace. And because their expectations were not being met, the war party transitioned from Rome and they aimed their sights right on the king of glory. It's ironic, isn't it? This war party that was supposed to be against Rome, now they would use Rome as the vessel to crucify their king. They would use Rome. Verse 16, all of this happened, right? And this is, this is the passage that should get, give each one of us a bit of comfort, okay? His disciples, once again, did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. This is really helpful for me to know. Because I think it would be really easy for me to be like, oh yeah, I would have known these prophecies really well. And had I been there, I would have seen Jesus coming in. I was like, oh man, that's not what he's here for. He's not here to lead an, an army. He's here to do the, all the right things. And here's my you know, systematic theology that I've memorized. I'll like show you that. Like I would like to think of myself in that position. But the truth is, most of us would not have been there. Most of us, like the Jewish people, with all of that history and context and hope and all of that wrapped up in this, we would have been cheering Hosanna, this guy's going to save us from Rome right now. And we would have been disappointed so that our cries at the beginning of the week would be very different to our cries at the end of the week. That's unfortunate. And what's interesting, as a child, I actually got to play both sides of this in the passion play. Um, I had to show us. (laughs) No, Um, I was a, I was a tall kid. And so like, I didn't get to be a cool, like kid that sits at Jesus' feet and learns from them. They're like, well, you're like six foot as a seventh grader. So you're going to be an adult. And I was like, okay. And I'm the little kid, right? Like I'm a little kid. And they're like, you get to wave palm branches and say, Hosanna. I was like, awesome. This is fun. I love this. This is a parade. And then at the end of the passion play, they're like, okay, you're going to stand right here. And when Jesus comes out, you're going to say, kill him, crucify him. I'm in sixth grade. I got to be on both sides of that. It was very strange, but it's true. It's true. That's what happened. It's true. Verse 17. I hope you feel like comforted in that. Like the disciples didn't get what was going on either. They, they were with him for very, every second of his life for three years, pretty much. And they didn't see what was happening. That was comforting. That's comforting to me to know. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. This is why the crowd went to meet him. Uh, went to meet him was, was that they heard that they had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that they are gaining nothing. You see, sorry, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This inclusion of this piece here is just showing that the Pharisees are finally saying this is out of our control completely. Like this Lazarus crowd, this parade, all of these things that these people are doing. This is out of our control. We have to do something drastic. 
And from here on out, the plan to crucify Jesus comes into full force. They are looking for any inch of a way to get in, accuse him of something, get him killed, and anybody else who's along with him. When they say that the world has gone after him, it's a cry for them of defeat. We, we have no power over these people. And here's what's actually beautiful about this passage, and even more ironic. Notice they didn't say the Jews have gone after him. The world. In this moment, the Pharisees are recognizing that Jesus' ministry has transitioned just from a, a Jewish thing to now everyone is starting to be included in the wake of his ministry. That's good news for you and me. It's good news for you and me. The world has gone after him. They were upset about that. We say amen. We say amen. So just a few observations. Exhortations about these observations, sorry. I'm going to ask you a few questions because these are the questions that we have to ask in light of these realities. Question one, when you walked in this morning, who did you want Jesus to be? Who did you want him to be? Who do you right now want Jesus to be? Who do you see Jesus as this morning? Did you come in here with some idea and some agenda and some bias? If Jesus was this, then this would happen. If Jesus was good, then these things in this world would be true. If Jesus was this, this, and this, then X, Y, Z, like, did you come in here with some level of expectation? And maybe you don't even know you did. That's a prayer for you this morning. Say, God, show me that. Holy Spirit, show me what I'm carrying in the expectations that I've placed on you. Now, here's the thing. It's okay to have expectations as long as they're based on this Jesus. As long as they're founded on this Jesus. If my expectations this morning are on this Jesus, then I'm okay. But if my expectations, you think we're disconnected from this reality, if our expectations of Jesus are that he is some political hero that is backing America and America alone, we are off base. We have missed something here. Jesus is not a political hero bringing about the glory of the Jews, and he's not a political hero bringing about the glory of America. He's not. Let's go back to the last thing the Pharisee says. The world has gone after him. Jesus is not some Republican or Democrat. He's not anything in between. And because of this, we should not equate politics or look to politics to be our salvation. It cannot be synonymous with our salvation. It's okay to be a good citizen. One commentator says this, that Jesus's victory is not political and neither is our hope. So be a good steward of your vote. Be wise in selecting leaders, but do so, and hear this part, do so without fear. Jesus is not on the ballot. We don't vote on the King of Kings. Our hope has never been and never will be in Washington, D.C. Our hope is sitting on a throne in heaven. In heaven. If you put your hope in Jesus being some agenda-filling political figure, you will be disappointed. And guess what? In your disappointment, you're going to do the exact same thing that the Jews following him did in their disappointment. You're going to abandon him. If he's your savior for political reasons, he will disappoint you. And in your disappointment, you're going to throw a fit and abandon him, just like all the people did. First exhortation. Second one, a little deeper into that. Let's get a little deeper into the expectation game. 
Jesus is not bad if he doesn't meet your expectations. And you need and we need to stop treating him like he's evil or bad when bad stuff happens in this world that surprises us. He is not bad. He is not evil. It's, it's funny, we as people like to take all the credit for ourselves when we do good in this world. We like to say, look at this good thing I've done. Look at this amazing thing I've built. Look at this, like, look at these people that I've mentored. Look at these, uh, this financial whatever that I've built. Like, we like to take a lot of credit for that when good stuff happens. But the moment any of that gets compromised, it's very easy for us to point our finger and say, this is God's fault that this went bad. We never even stop to consider that our own decisions and our sin and the brokenness of this world are the ones responsible. We just like to blame God. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible doesn't promise that only good things will happen to you. The God of the Bible promises bigger things. He says, put your trust in me because the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Yes, we're going to hurt while we're on this earth. Yes, pain will come. And when it does, God is not bad. He's not. And I'm not even talking about lost people do this. Sure, they do. I'm talking about Christians that do this. Hey, I'm talking about me. I've done this. I've been so disappointed and angry with God. And I'm not talking about like 10 years ago. I'm talking about like last week. I've been so angry and frustrated with God that I wave my fist at the sky and say, God, how could you do this? I'm, I'm ignoring, by the way, all the blessing and, and good things that he's given me, like every good gift and perfect gift comes from above, right? I'm ignoring that. I'm saying this bad thing happened. God, how could you do this? And in that moment, this is what I was met with. As I, as I was raging against the sky, I was brought back to one of my favorite passages in scripture and I was humbled and stilled and frozen when, when Job is addressed out of the whirlwind and God says, who are you that speaks with words without knowledge? Stand up like a man and answer these questions. Where were you when the foundations of the world were laid? Do you know the, the way I've basically, God says to Job, do you even understand the picture that I'm painting here? Do you even see like, do you even see the sovereign control of our, I have? Do you know like the snow that I've, I've put in storehouses in the way? Do you know like how the horse runs? Like I made all of this stuff. I laid the foundations of the world. I know what's going on. I'm sovereign over the entire story. And in this moment, I'm asking you to trust me because there's people, Kayla and I were talking about this week, there's people not even born that will come to know Jesus because of this small moment of pain here. This pain here is not meaningless. Look at the grander story of glory and good that I'm building. You can't see it. I can trust me. That's what God is saying. I'm not bad because I let this thing happen. This thing, bad thing happened because of sin and brokenness in the world. And when you cry about this bad thing, so do I is what God says. He is with us in our suffering. He hates it when bad stuff happens. It's the brokenness of the world which by the way is a consequence of sin, which by the way is mankind's fault. So the choice that we made and we entered into, the brokenness of the world exists. But God says like, don't lose hope because it's not meaningless. 
I'm not leaving you in your suffering. I'm not leaving you in your pain. I'm bringing you out of that for something better. There's something better. The promise isn't a removal of suffering. The promise is hope in the middle of suffering. Hope that I can look one day and say, one day I'm not gonna cry anymore over the pain that I see. I'm not gonna cry when I flip on the news and I see destruction. I'm not gonna cry when I flip on the news and I see people murdering children. I'm not gonna cry anymore because all of that's gonna be done. It will be over. One day, he will return again. He will return again. So the question again is, who is the Jesus you worship? Is he your personal preference God who fits into your ideals and beliefs? Or is he the God of his words? Is he the word of life? Is he the king? He's the humble prince of peace is what this book says. This book says that he has been given authority over all things as one equal with God the Father. Hebrews says that he's the greatest high priest who can empathize with our suffering. He knows everything that we are going through and that we've gone through, and he shares in our suffering with us. It says, the book says that he is the key to life everlasting, that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not perish. He is the new and better Adam. He is our advocate. He's the author, the finisher of our faith. He is the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the bridegroom, and we are the bride. He is the bread, the light the good shepherd, the resurrection life, the cornerstone, the counselor, the deliverer, the lion of the tribe of Judah, our savior, the way, the truth, and the life, the very word of God and his next triumphant entry will not be a peaceful one. It will not be a peaceful one. He came in peace the first time to die for our sins, but the second time he will end death and put it to death. He will end sin and Satan himself will forever be defeated once and for all. Revelation says the one sitting on uh, the, the war horse, right? And at the end of all things is called faithful and true. The white horse, not a donkey, a humble donkey. It's a white horse. It's called faithful and true. And in his righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written, that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury and wrath of God almighty and on his robe and on his thigh, he has, been, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This king died for your sins. And at the end of Holy Week, he would be crucified and beaten beyond recognition for you so that one day we are not on the bad side of that war. <laughs> one day when he rides his war horse out to defeat the enemies of God once and for all, we all deserve to be the ones slaughtered in that fight. But he died for you this week that we recognize so that in that time you can be behind him and that you can be waving the banner of the gospel and you can be singing Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and has made his light to shine upon us. We can wave palm branches on that day, on that day. So this morning, I wanna offer you a few things. If you're feeling condemnation this morning for getting your expectations of Jesus twisted, that's okay. It's called conviction. And Jesus has grace for you. 
grace upon grace for you. Confess it. If you're like, I don't know if I do or not, ask the Spirit to reveal it. Confess before him. And if you're not a believer today, today is the day of salvation. Jesus loves you. He died for you. This week is going to be pointing all towards that. So look to him, because I promise you this, this king will be victorious over all of his enemies. Everything else you put your hope in will fail, but he will be victorious over every enemy. I want to end this morning with a poem, the poet Charles Weed, and it's a poem contrasting Alexander the Great with Jesus. Alexander the Great, the warrior, right? The, the war horse riding emperor and King Jesus. Listen to this poem. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon and one on Calvary. One gained all for self and one himself he gave. One conquered every throne, the other every grave. When died the Greek forever fell his throne of swords, but Jesus died to live forever, Lord of lords. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves. The Jew made all men free. One built a throne on blood. The other built on love. The one was born of earth. The other from above. One won all this earth to lose all earth and heaven. The other gave up all that to all to him be given. The Greek forever died. The Jew forever lives. He loses all who gets and wins all things who gives. Let's pray. Father, let your word shake us this morning. Let it leave us in a place of weakness <laughs> so that your strong hand can come in and do what it does. Father, we need you. Write our thinking of you. Direct our twisted expectations about who you are and point them to the God of the Bible. Correct us, Lord. Shape us, Lord. Heal us, Lord. And from some of us, Lord, save us. God, we recognize you right now as the king of glory. Lord, I, I, I want to cry out to you, Hosanna. <laughs> Save us. Save us, Lord. God, as we come to your table, remind us of your saving power. Remind us of the, the gospel. Remind us of how you died and the power of your resurrection this morning. And as you do so, unite us into a family, the whole world after you, God. Lord, we love you. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. <laughs>